Attention listeners, this podcast contains graphic content, explicit language, frightening stories, and other adult content not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This podcast may also contain triggers for suicide, depression, and other types of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. The Wendigo was gaunt, to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash-gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. Basil Johnston, Ojibwe teacher and scholar, Ontario, Canada. You've done it now. Your curiosity has betrayed you. You've made it to the end of the woods. But there is one problem. The monster who resides here with his bevy of fiendish friends will entangle you with his tales of haunting horrors. I pity you, friend. For you were brave enough to dive into the depths of the monster's lair. Hello, listeners. I am your master and host, the trailer park monster himself, J.D. Hutchins. And I am... As legendary radio personality Tom Looney would say, slaving over a hot microphone for you down here in the dank, dark, dirty depths of the dungeon of the monster's lair. It pleases me to announce to you that the monster's lair continues to grow both nationally and internationally. At this time, I would like to take a few minutes and thank our brand new listeners in the following regions. First, thank you to our new listeners in the region of Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. I would also like to thank our new listeners in Heilwood, Pennsylvania, and our new listeners in Noonan, Georgia. Thank you all for finding the Monster's Lair. Thank you all for listening to The Monster's Lair. And most importantly of all, thank you all for supporting what we do here 
in the monster's lair. I am very appreciative of all of my listeners because this show is nothing. Any podcast is nothing without its listeners. So once again, thank you all for not only finding the show, but listening to the show on a regular basis. And welcome to the Monsterage. Welcome in, listeners, to the Monster's Lair. I'm your host of the Trailer Park Monster, J.D. Hutchins. Once again this week, I am Sans' co-host, as my partner Tom the Nightmare, still dealing with an important family issue. We wish him the best of luck in his endeavors, and we hope that everything turns out all right. And as soon as it does, we will welcome him back to the show with open arms. With that being said, on this week's edition of the show, we are covering a First Nations of Canada and Native American folk tale. That tale is the tale of the Wendigo. How much of the folk tale is actually a tale, and how much of this tale is based in a factual occurrence? a real-life mental condition that has been proven by science to exist. Stick around. Hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, let's dive into the deep and dark depths of the tale of the Wendigo. In the north woods of Minnesota, the forest of the Great Lake region and the central regions of Canada is said to live a malevolent being called a Wendigo, sometimes also spelled W-I-N-D-I-G-O. This creature may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and cultural taboos against such behaviors. Known by several names, Wendigo, Wittigo, Wittico, and Weetigo, each of them roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. This creature has long been known among the Algonquin, Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, Salto, Mast Wayne, West Main Swampy Cree, Nuskapi, and Innu peoples who have described them as giants, many times larger than human beings. Although descriptions can vary somewhat, common to all these cultures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being that is strongly associated with winter, the north, 
coldness, famine, and starvation. The Algonquin legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwa describe it it was a large creature, as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was strange in a hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate many man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo choose to possess a person instead. And then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. According to the legends, a Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when Native Americans and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snows and ice of the North Woods. Sometimes stranded for days, any survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead in order to survive. Other versions of the legend cite that humans who display extreme greed, gluttony, and excess might also be possessed by a Wendigo. Thus, the myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Other Native American versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that had once been human but had been transformed into a creature by the use of magic. Though all of the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having sallow yellowish skin, and other times depicted to be covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have a number of skills and powers including stealth, is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through the use of dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh, and if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. The legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, which is considered by some psychiatrists to be a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh and a fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis is said to occur within people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. 
Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals who are isolated by heavy snow for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo. People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. The most common response when a person showed signs of Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by traditional native healers. In cases of the past, if these attempts failed, and if the possessed person began either to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were executed. There have been reports regarding this psychosis dating back hundreds of years. A Wendigo allegedly made a number of appearances near a town called Rosso in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s through the 1920s. Each time that it was reported, an unexpected death followed, and finally it was seen no more. Never satiated, the Wendigo will wander searching for its next meal. Certain researchers believe that tales of the Wendigo serve as a type of morality play warning against cannibalism. Winter in the north is harsh, and survival was a precarious proposition into the early 20th century. Others believe that there may be more to the story than simple starvation-induced bouts of madness when it comes to Wendigo psychosis. The appearance of the creature in Rosso has led some researchers to wonder if perhaps some of the stories are based on something of more of a physical substance. Some Bigfoot researchers even speculate that the Wendigo's large size and appearance might be based on sightings of North America's best-known cryptid, while still others think that perhaps the stories could be indicative, indicative of an actual spirit entity. Rosso is a city in the county seat of Rosso County, Minnesota, United States. Its population was 2,633 at the 2010 census. A post office called Rosso has been in operation since 1895. The city took its name from the nearby Rosso River at the connection of Minnesota State Highways 11, 89, and 310 since this tiny town, which is the site of several sightings of an infamous legend of Native and First Nations folklore. Another well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an OG Cree chief and medicine man known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. 
Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos during his lifetime. Some of these creatures were said to have been sent by enemy shamans, and others were members of his own band who had been taken with the insatiable and curable desire to consume human flesh. In the latter case, Fiddler was usually asked by family members to kill a very sick loved one before they turned to Wendigo. Fiddler's own brother, Peter Flett, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson's Bay Company traders, the Cree, and missionaries in the area were well all aware of the Wendigo legend. Though they often explained it as mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the historical records of the company. In 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He ultimately was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news of his pardon. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century and is said to be a product of the Native Americans coming into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies. However, Wendigo creature sightings are still reported, especially in northern Ontario near the cave of the Wendigo and around the town of Kenora, where it has allegedly been spotted by traders trackers, and trappers for decades. There are many who still believe that the Wendigo roams the woods and the prairies of northern Minnesota and Canada. Kenora, Ontario, Canada has been given the title of Wendigo Capital of the World by many. Sightings of the creature in this area have continued well into the new millennium. According to legend, it's nearly impossible to escape a Wendigo. Hunters by nature, Wendigos are extremely fast and allow nothing to get in the way of their never-ending hunger. Even if you could escape physical damage, the very fact that you'd encountered an otherworldly Wendigo would leave you mentally vacant. Wendigos hibernate for months or years, but woe betide when they awaken. Legend states that Wendigos can stealthily stalk victims for extended periods thanks to supernatural speed, endurance, and heightened senses such as hearing so profound they can pick up on panicked heartbeats from miles away. The skill comes in quite handy in the woods, no doubt. Once the chase begins, Wendigos engage in a torturous game in which they delight in.
they bait their prey, release shrieks or growls, and sometimes mimic human voices calling for help. When the hunt begins, a window go becomes all business. Tracking, stalking, and killing with machine-like precision. It will race after its prey, upending trees, creating animal stampedes, and thus more famine, and stirring up ice storms and tornadoes. Don't be fooled in believing you're safe indoors. The Wendigo can unlock doors and enter homes, where it will kill and eat the inhabitants before converting the cabins into Wendigo domiciles for hibernation. Wendigos can mimic both voices and shapes. Understandably, this makes them hard to detect. Hard, but not impossible. Like most beings driven by insatiable hunger, Wendigo prefer inhabiting large, carnivorous forms with massive teeth and jaws over, say, insects. Animal horns are a dead giveaway. Wendigo use them to lure unsuspecting trophy hunters to their death. Most people who encounter a Wendigo die because they made the mistake of screaming. The one weakness of a Wendigo is eyesight, so don't alert them to your exact location. Don't scream. Just move away as quickly and quietly as possible. While generally a good rule of thumb to follow with almost any being that shines red light out of its eyeballs, with Wendigo this is a particularly important. Have you ever seen a deer caught in headlights? Well with Wendigo, this appears to work in reverse. The deer is hunting you. Despite the beast's immeasurable amount of power, there are ways to protect oneself from the Wendigo. If one is hunting this creature, a fire must be kept burning at all times. This will deter the Wendigo from attacking, but only for so long. If burned, the wounds of the Wendigo will quickly heal and will only make the beast angry. Any means of mystical protection should be employed, such as amulets, protective spells, fetishes, and charms, as these things hold power over the Wendigo. Headphones or earplugs must be used to block out the beast's maddening shrieks. If you can't outrun a Wendigo, can you outgun it, you may ask? Not easily. As previously mentioned when discussing the effects of fire on the Wendigo, wounded Wendigo simply regenerate. The trick is to employ silver bullets or a pure silver blade or stake and strike through the Wendigo's ice-cold heart. Upon wounding the Wendigo's heart, you must take care to shatter it into pieces, then lock the shattered heart in a silver box and bury it in hallowed ground. Not one to seek a simple end, the rest of the Wendigo must be dismembered with a silver-plated axe so you can salt and burn the body and then scatter its ashes to the winds. Or, as a second option, bury the pieces 
in a remote location. Skip a step and the Wendigo will sure to be to resurrect itself. Mercilessly hunt you down and inflict a slow and agonizing death for all the trouble you have caused. But, alas, these are the westernized tropes of how to defeat a Wendigo. The native, aboriginal, and First Nations people believed that the real, non-fantasized Wendigo could be warded off by warning against greed and selfishness and not engaging in cultural taboos that went against the people of their bands. The Wendigo originates from spiritual beliefs held by indigenous peoples whose inhabited large parts of both the northeastern seaboard and the continental interior, especially the region around the Great Lakes. A diverse, colorful mix of many different cultures and nations, the people share a set of similar dialects of the Algonquin language. As a result, they're often referred to as the Algonquin peoples. The Wendigo is often believed to be the spirit of winter and a symbol of the dangers of selfishness. It is a representation of insatiable hunger, both physical and of greed. According to Sean Smallman, author of Dangerous Spirits, the Wendigo Myth and History, it was a means of defining moral social behavior which should serve as a warning against greed and selfishness. One could also become a Wendigo if a shaman cursed them or if they dreamed of the Wendigo. The myth was also used to explain mental illness and other serious afflictions. Today, the Wendigo has become a fixture in North American popular culture and is a frequent subject in film and literature all over the world. It is featured in novels such as Rick Yancey's The Curse of the Wendigo and Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. They've become video game characters in Final Fantasy, The Legend of Dragoon, and The Secret World, and have been given life in role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. Marvel Comics has created Wendigo personas. More recently, television shows such as Grimm and Hannibal have featured Wendigos and even the cartoon My Little Pony. Non-native writers seem to be fascinated by the Wendigo. However, their depictions of the Wendigo vary considerably from those presented by indigenous authors. These differences speak volumes about how non-native people tend to simplify indigenous beliefs and often strip them of cultural context in the process. Brady DeSanti, a professor of religious studies at the University of Nebraska notes that the Wendigo of pop culture often gets most everything about the Wendigo wrong, including the depiction of Native Americans and First Nations communities. According to most Native American legends, the physical form of a Wendigo is often said to be human-like. Over time, it becomes a giant. 
In some stories, the Wendigo has a heart of ice and is so hungry for flesh that it chews its lips off. Conversely, when the Wendigo appears in North American pop culture, it is usually likened to a werewolf, vampire, yeti, or some combination thereof. DeSanti thinks this has to do with Hollywood's tendency to understand the Wendigo in terms of other popular monsters of cinema. A quick Google image search for Wendigo produces page of antlered snow demons and giant reindeer-like beasts. This image is a far cry from how indigenous people understood the Wendigo. As Sean Smallman notes, traditional indigenous narratives never imagined the Wendigo with antlers. In addition to an accurate imagery, popular depictions of the Wendigo as a ravenous animal have also displaced the original emphasis that indigenous people placed on the Wendigo as a lesson on human greed. These narratives also fail to acknowledge that the Wendigo and the indigenous cultures that imagined it have evolved over time, as have indigenous people's cultural practices. Smallman notes that current images of the Wendigo separate it from aboriginal culture and that there is little meaningful discussion of native beliefs. Instead, aboriginal peoples are often associated with a simplified version of the past in which discussions of colonialism and capitalism are avoided. Among many native peoples, the Wendigo's remains a warning against greed, but now they associate it with the excess of capitalism and colonialism rather than wilderness or barren winters. Importantly, even this modern conceptualization of the Wendigo among indigenous peoples is not without hope. Dr. Grace Dillon, professor of indigenous nations studies at Portland State University has observed that indigenous authors' depictions of the Wendigo tend to offer hope in what seems to be such a desperate moment. They often have happy endings involving characters who escape the Wendigo against all odds, while in Western interpretations, the Wendigo has so much power that its spirit person decimates all in its path. In the end, pop culture's fascination with the Wendigo may prove a misguided attempt to draw from non-European folklore. I think audiences and filmmakers alike occasionally get tired of the old tried-and-true monsters of the big screen and look outside a Western context for inspiration. Still, more often than not, the filmmakers simply take the Wendigo and make it into a relatable monster for Western audiences, which kind of defeats the purpose of going outside of a Western context for inspiration in the first place," said DeSanti. No matter how you paint the picture of the tale of the Wendigo, it illustrates the magic and staying power of a great story passed from one generation to the next. It also allows us to see how different cultures encounter, confront, and rationalize issues they are faced with. 
The tale of the Wendigo is an important one to tell, as, at its core, it holds something very real and important, much like the frozen heart of the Wendigo itself. We tell the tale of the Wendigo to warn of the dangers of insatiable greed, insatiable hunger, and never being satisfied. This need and want continuously for more and more than what we actually need will always lead us down the path to ruin. Earlier in the episode, I discussed Wendigo psychosis. Wendigo psychosis is best described as a culture-bound disorder, formerly of the Algonquin tribes of North America, which involves an intense craving for human flesh, even when other food sources are readily available, and the fear that one will turn into a cannibal. The condition has said to have waned with urbanization. The most notorious case of Wendigo psychosis is the case of a gentleman by the name of Swift Runner, a Cree native hunter and trapper. Swift Runner has one of the most well-documented, grisly, and terrifying cases of Wendigo psychosis that is deemed to be 100% true. Swift Runner was a Cree native who lived during the last century in what is now central Alberta. His background seemed not unusual. As a young man, he received a solid and useful Cree education. He married and had a family of six children and he traded with the Hudson's Bay Company and, in 1875, served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. Swift Runner's life ended in tragedy and notoriety. During the terrible winter of 1878-79, through 79, a time of starvation and misery for the Cree people, he became possessed by the Wendigo psychosis. He murdered his wife and family and cooked and ate their flesh. Eventually, he was arrested, brought to trial, and in December 1879, hanged at Fort Saskatchewan. Swift Runner was a Cree hunter and trapper from the country north of Fort Edmonton. He was a big man, over six feet tall, and well-liked by his people. He was mild and trustworthy, a considerate husband, and very fond of his children. All of these traits endeared him to his people and to the traders of Hudson's Bay Company. But this was not enough to ally suspicion when he returned from his winter camp 
in the spring of 1879 without his wife and family. When he could not give a satisfactory account of their whereabouts, his in-laws became worried. They decided to tell the Northwest Mounted Police, who had then been in the West for just five years. Northwest Mounted Police Inspector Sever Gagnon was given the task of investigating Swift Runner's behavior. Gagnon was the first French-Canadian recruited to the Northwest Mounted Police. Being a bilingual officer, he was transfer transferred to Fort Carleton as the post commander to provide intelligence reports on the activity of Métis people and their unrest. His report provided a means of identifying the various complaints of the Métis people. He and a small party of policemen accordingly trekked out to the trapper's camp. Swift Runner obligingly showed the mounted policeman a small grave near his camp. He explained that one of his boys had died and he was buried there. Gagnon and his detachment opened the grave and found the bones undisturbed. That, however, did not explain the human bones scattered around the encampment. Gagnon produced the skull which Swift Runner willingly told him was that of his wife. Without much prodding, Swift Runner revealed what had happened to the rest of his family. At first, Swift Runner became haunted by dreams. A Wendigo spirit called on him to consume the people around him. The spirit crept through his mind, gradually taking control. Finally, he was a Wendigo and Swift Runner no longer. Then the Wendigo killed and ate Swift Runner's wife. This accomplished, the Wendigo forced one of Swift Runner's boys to kill and butcher his younger brother. While enjoying this grisly meal, the spirit hung Swift Runner's infant by the neck from a lodgepole and tugged at the baby's dangling feet. It was later shown that he had also done away with Swift Runner's brother and his mother-in-law, though he acknowledged that she had been a bit tough. The revolted, disgusted, and terrified mounting police party hauled Swift Runner and the mutilated evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan. The trial of Swift Runner began on August 8, 1879. The judge and jury, as they were of Caucasian descent, did not view the Wendigo idea in the same light as the Cree. They saw Swift Runner as a murderer, and the trapper made no attempt to hide his guilt. 
Magistrate Richardson quickly sentenced him to be hanged. The sentence presented a problem. The police had never before conducted an execution. Although the Hudson's Bay Company had once hanged an employee for murder, this was, for all intents and purposes, the first formal execution in Western Canada. Mounted Police Staff Sergeant Fred Bagley, a force bugler, was put in charge of the arrangements. A gallows was erected within the fort enclosure at Fort Saskatchewan, and an old army pensioner named Rogers was made hangman. It was pitch black and brutally cold when Swift Runner was led from his cell at Fort Saskatchewan Jail to start his long, last walk toward the gallows that awaited outside in the swirling snow. Swift Runner, or as he was known in his native tongue, Ka Ki Si Kuchin, had been told to prepare for death and seemed to have heeded the advice. He walked confidently into the yard, seeming much calmer than many of those who were there to watch him die. Most of the 60 people gathered near the gallows had never seen a hanging, and they were nervous and anxious about what was going to happen. Sheriff Edouard Richard had been delayed by the snow and weather and was flustered by his late arrival at the fort. The hangman, who was actually a pensioner and not a hangman at all, too appeared to be nervous. The execution had been ordered to take place at 7.30 a.m. on December 20th, 1879. With less than half an hour left to go, it was discovered that the crowd had taken the trap from the gallows and burned it as kindling to keep warm while they awaited the grim spectacle. It was also discovered that the inexperienced hangman had forgotten to bring straps to bind the prisoner's arms. As the sheriff and hangman rushed to get the scaffold ready again, Swift Runner sat near one of the fires that had been started nearby, joking, chatting, and snacking on pemmican, which is a mixture of tallow, dried meat, and dried berries, used as a nutritious food with the thick noose hanging loosely around his neck. I could kill myself with a tomahawk and save the hangman further trouble, he joked. Swift Runner was well known around the Fort Saskatchewan settlement, a striking six foot three with a strapping build and what one policeman called as ugly and evil a looking face as I had ever seen. He had once been known as smart and trustworthy, a reputation that won him a job as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. But, as one newspaper story would later point out, his contact with white men, however, ruined him. That ruination came, in part, 
from an inordinate fondness for the whiskey that was smuggled into the area disguised as medicine. Swift Runner was known to be an ugly customer to meet with when on a spree. So ugly that some called him the terror of the whole region. The police sent Swift Runner back to his tribe where he caused so much trouble he turned the Cree camps into little hells and was eventually turned out from his community altogether, retreating to the wilderness with his wife, mother, brother, and six children, where eventually they would all meet their end at the hands of Swift Runner or, from his statements, the Wendigo that possessed him. Swift Runner declined to spend the night before his execution with a priest. The white man has ruined me, he said. I don't think their god could amount to much. Some said Swift Runner had developed a taste for cannibalism years earlier when he was forced to eat the remains of a starved hunting partner to save himself in the bitter cold of the region. Others say he had been possessed by the Wendigo. Two hours after Swift Runner was led to the gallows, the execution was finally ready to proceed. He was allowed to eat one final pound of pemmican before he was pinioned tightly with rope and taken to the scaffold, where a thick black hood was placed over his head. The trap fell and Swift Runner went down with fearful force, there being a drop of five feet, the Daily Evening Mercury reported. He died without a struggle. The body was cut down in an hour and buried in the snow outside the fort. Sheriff Edouard Richard said those who attended the hanging were satisfied with what they saw. One witness, an elderly 49er who had watched several other executions in the United States, also seemed pleased with the spectacle, slapping his thigh and saying, Boys, it was the prettiest hanging I ever seen. Nowadays, we view a psychosis what the Cree thought to be the work of a Wendigo spirit. At one time in the belt of parkland that borders the northern plains, it was far from being a rare phenomenon. Usually the symptoms were the same as those displayed by Swift Runner, and in one way or another, most of the afflicted Wendigos met similar violent death. No one knows why Rudy Eugene, a 31-year-old car wash employee, suddenly launched himself at Ronald Popo, a 65-year-old homeless man he encountered on Miami's MacArthur Causeway, chewing off most of his victim's face in an 18-minute assault that ended only after a police officer shot him dead.
Eugene was naked and responded to the initial shot by growling at the cop. The incident left Ronald Popo left with 50% of his face damaged and missing, making him almost unrecognizable and needing the assistance of a long-term care facility in the Miami area. In the seconds before Eugene began to mutilate him, Papa recalled that Eugene's conversation turned ominous. You, me, buddy, and nobody else here, Papa recalled. I'm going to kill you. Did he say why? Detective Sergeant Altair Williams asked. No. He just started to scream, Papo said, and was talking kind of funny talk for a while, too. He must have been souped up on something. Although Papo sounded calm through the interview, he recounted very vivid and gruesome moments during the attack. He mashed my face into the sidewalk. My eyes, my eyes got plucked out. He was strangling me in wrestling holds at the same time he was plucking my eyes out. As I stated before, no one knows why Eugene attacked Papo. One thing we do know for certain is, bath salts did not make him do it. We know that because toxicological tests found no trace of synthetic cathinones, the stimulants known as bath salts, in Eugene's body. The results of toxicology tests were not announced until a month after the attack, which happened on a Saturday afternoon in May 2012. In the meantime, news outlets around the world, based on zero evidence aside from one police officer's speculation, attributed Eugene's savage violence to a drug he had not taken using security cam camera footage of the Causeway Cannibal sometimes also known as the Miami Zombie, to illustrate the horrors wrought by a non-existent epidemic. After the incident, scientists presented one of the most comprehensive reviews yet of the drug's effects on the human body. The evidence seems stronger than ever that bath salts aren't likely to cause a craving for human flesh. Young people still associate bath salts with cannibalism, Michael Bauman, head of Designer Drug Research Unit at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, stated. Despite the fact that there's no truth to the Miami cannibals' connection to bath salts, that's not to say the drugs are safe, of course. The research from Bauman and his colleagues presented at the Society for Neuroscience's annual gathering in Washington, D.C., suggests the drugs act much like cocaine or ecstasy by tweaking the body's production and absorption of dopamine. Researchers found that many modern versions of the drug are based on synthetic versions of cathinones, a product derived from the cot plant, a popular stimulant chewed in parts of the Middle East. Dopamine is the same compound the brain releases in small doses when confronted with pleasurable stimulus an effect mimed by many drugs. Cocaine, for instance, blocks the body from reabsorbing dopamine so it remains in the system longer. Ecstasy, meanwhile, tricks cells into releasing more. Bath salts use both tricks, the scientists found.
cathinones cause more dopamine to be released, while a compound called MDPV keeps it in the body longer. The drugs all increase the amount of extracellular dopamine in the body, which is what feels good and also what leads to addiction risks, Bauman says. Is it possible that this incident could also be attributed to the Wendigo psychosis phenomenon? Is Rudy Eugene just a modern Florida man version of Swift Runner? No one knows for sure, but we know it wasn't the drugs, and we know that Wendigo psychosis is a documented, real phenomenon with real, sometimes deadly, results. Start backpedaling now. You've gone too far. You're stuck in the monster's lair with the trailer park monster himself. J.D. Hutchins. Enjoy. We were camping up in the northernmost area of Washington. My girlfriend is incredibly superstitious, so she insisted we brought weapons. So, I had my combat knife and a 12-gauge shotgun, and she brought a 22 rifle alongside a newly sharpened machete. Our son was just three years old at the time. This is very young to take on a trip, I know, but after three years of not going out, not leaving the house, and caring only about the well-being of our son, we needed time away. We had planned to leave our son with family, but plans fell through. Even had we attempted, I highly doubt my girlfriend's separation anxiety from her firstborn child would have allowed us to get far. She and I were set on edge from a park ranger who seemed very tense and uneasy, who stopped us and instead of confiscating our weapons, told us to be careful and stay safe, then sent us along our way to the camp. Now that I look back on that day, I should have seen this as a massive red flag. When we got there, we were informed that several visitors had spoken out about something unnatural and unnatural noises and a pale creature that wound, would mimic voices and sounds of people who weren't talking or seeming to be distracted. I laughed, put the idea out of my mind, thinking to myself, there's no way. They're fucking with us. But I knew better. This was Missed Red Flag number two. So, when we reached the area we were going to set up camp, we immediately got a fire ready to light and set up our tent and bags. I fed my son as my girlfriend ate a snack. We decided to get a lay of the area, so me and my girlfriend hiked around for about an hour or so. I had one of those baby carrying backpacks, and my son started to get really heavy. Everything seemed normal, 
until I saw something down the path we were on. We walked closer to investigate and saw drag marks. It looked as if someone had killed a buck. There was a whole outline in the dirt with a small dried pool of blood as if someone grabbed it from the antlers and pulled. That would only be possible for any man to do if he was incredibly strong. The buck, or whatever it was, would have been extremely big for that. Shaken, we rushed back to base camp and restarted the fire and hurried back into our tent. Too afraid to leave since it was dusk by now, we stayed inside the tent and my girlfriend put our son to bed. Eventually, probably from the exhaustion of fright, we fell asleep. What must have been hours later, I awoke to a faint rasping sound that sounded like a child crying. I gazed outside in confusion and saw the outline of a creature that seemed to be a buck standing over something. It seemed to be about 20 feet away, but at a closer glance, I could make out that it had unnaturally long limbs for a buck and was eerily tall. In sudden fear, I grabbed my wife's gun and I unloaded two shots of 22 into the creature and heard a loud blood-curdling cry. My girlfriend awoke screaming to the shots I had fired as I tried to explain what I had heard. To my surprise, the animal hadn't moved an inch. Then I noticed the stains on the side of the animal. It looked like blood was running down the edge, and lots of it. This is when I came to the realization that the measly 22 was barely enough to just piss off a grown man, let alone take down whatever this ungodly abomination was out in the darkness. It stared me deep into my eyes as I became petrified with fear. A sinister feeling of dread fell over me as if I knew I couldn't move. I thought to myself, what if it starts to bolt towards us? But just then, this tall, decrepit, demonic thing seemed to whisper something. I couldn't exactly tell what it was saying, but it seemed to have said, I need more children. My girlfriend screamed, asking where our son was. In a torrent of fear, emotion, panic, exhaustion, pain, and some type of influence, I, to this day, do not understand. We blacked out. In the morning, we awoke to park rangers at our campsite. We didn't see our son anywhere. We told the rangers that he was missing, and they started a search party. I explained the best I could while still in a numb, fuzzy state of shock what had happened, and strangely, they seemed to believe it. The one who seemed to be older by at least a decade pulled along the one we met earlier and whispered in his ear. I only heard a single line, and I'm not even sure if I, what I heard was correct. It sounded like he said, it's getting bolder. They didn't seem to want us by ourselves, so they waited with us while they continued the search. We stayed in a log cabin 
for three days with a forest ranger. When suddenly some rangers came into the cabin saying they couldn't find our son. My girlfriend started to sob. I started to hate myself, thinking that I could have done something if I wasn't frozen in fear. We rushed outside only to find some injured and frightened police officials. The rangers wouldn't tell us anything of what happened or what they saw, or why the cops were scared shitless. All we know is that we don't have a son anymore. Please, heed this story. Trust your gut. Realize when something's off. See the red flags. God help whoever goes into that forest next. And please, please, don't bring your kids with you. I found the above story posted to the No Sleep Reddit by user WhaleLord69. The story was edited and added to by yours truly, the Trailer Park Monster, J.D. Hutchins. We here at the Monsters Lair care greatly about the physical and mental health of all of our listeners. We believe it is important to pursue these goals on a daily basis, to live a happy and healthy life. With this goal in mind, we have partnered with Phoenix Fit and are now brand ambassadors for the brand. FNX is an excellent company based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, right here in the good old US of A. FNX is committed to creating innovative supplements of the highest quality that provide focus for a productive morning, energy to thrive throughout the entire day, and performance supplements to reach new goals, unique sleep and recovery, form recovery formulas to support any sport, and healthy supplements to support any active lifestyle for all your years to come. The Monsters Lair are proud ambassadors of FNX Fit. Together we rise. We become greater when we rise together. As the phoenix rises from the ashes, our mission is to provide fuel for greatness to live in victory every day. With our unique position as brand ambassadors, we here at the Monster's Lair can help directly in our listeners' daily health goals by providing you, the listener, with this special promo code. This code is TMLFNX20. With it, you can save 15% off any purchase you make from fnxfit.com. Once again, that code is TMLFNX20. Go to fnxfit.com and check it out now. Thank you for all of your support. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis on May 25th, Tony Kemp, Oakland A's second baseman and former player for my hometown AAA team, the Fresno Grizzlies, was one of the most active players in the MLB to speak out against racial injustice. Unsure of how he might be received upon reuniting with teammates for summer camp, 
Kemp has been overwhelmed by the positive response and support from his teammates. On June 5th, a week into the nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd by police officers, Oakland A's utility man Tony Kemp posted a tweet offering to talk. If anyone wanted to have a conversation about race or learn more about systemic racism, his virtual door was open. Two weeks later, he started a movement. The plus one effect. He is embodying a quote that I personally cite often and wholeheartedly believe in. In the words of Gandhi, he hopes to be the change he wants to see in the world by holding an honest and respectful dialogue with one individual at a time and starting a chain reaction that can change perspectives around the country. Kemp states that, quote, change one perspective, hope they can change another, and slowly we begin to see the type of systemic change that Kemp has been waiting for for a lifetime. Kemp's The Plus One Effect, in partnership with clothing brand Breaking Tea, sees part of their proceeds go to Campaign Zero, an organization dedicated to decreasing police violence with its hashtag 8CanWait initiative. Research shows more restrictive use of force policies can reduce killings by police and save lives. Tell your city to adopt all eight of these policies now. The eight policies are ban chokeholds and strangholds, require de-escalation, require warning before shooting, require exhaustive and to exhaust all alternatives before shooting. Duty to intervene, ban shooting at moving vehicles, require the use of force continuum to be put into place, and require comprehensive reporting by all parties involved. Another portion of proceeds from the plus one effect go to Gideon's Army, a group focused on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline and interrupting the transmission of violence. In the United States, the school-to-prison pipeline, also known as the school-to-prison link or the schoolhouse-to-jailhouse track, is the disproportionate tendency of minors and young adults from disadvantaged backgrounds to become incarcerated because of increasingly harsh school and municipal policies. Exclusionary disciplinary policies, specifically zero tolerance policies, that remove students from the school environment, increase the probability of a youth coming into contact with the incarceration system. Risky problem behavior is something those students who were suspended will most likely engage in. Ways to break this cycle include prevention, 
encouraging cultural competence in teachers, and looking at rehabilitative practices such as restorative justice to keep young children in school to help them through any issues. The Plus One Effect t-shirts are available in three styles. A navy blue adult t-shirt with a gold and white front and back print on a comfortable cotton poly blend crew neck. Unisex sizing with a snug fit, ranging sizes small to 3X. A Kelly Green adult t-shirt, gold and white front and back print on a super comfortable cotton poly blended crew neck. Unisex sizing with a snug fit, sizes small to 3X. And a navy blue youth t-shirt with gold and white front and back print on a comfortable cotton poly blend crew neck. The shirts are designed by Nick Torres and screened in the USA. Go to www.breakingtea.com slash products slash plus one effect and order your very own the plus one effect shirt today and support productive and respectful discourse on the current race relations in our country while directly helping out great organizations focused on racial equality. Also, if you'd ever like to have a productive discourse on race relations, we are available to talk at any time. Thank you. Let's be clear. Liquid death is a completely unnecessary approach to bottled water. In fact, they strive to be unnecessary in everything they do. Because unnecessary things tend to be far more interesting, fun, hilarious, captivating, memorable, exciting, and cult-worthy than necessary things. For example, here's a short list. Unnecessary things. Smashing a guitar on stage and lighting it on fire. Jumping over 14 Greyhound buses on a vintage motorcycle. And cat videos. Here's a list of some unnecessary, some necessary things. Breathing, driving the speed limit, and colonoscopies. Liquid Death was started with a totally evil plan to make people laugh and get more of them to drink more water more often. How? By taking the world's healthiest beverage and making it just as unnecessarily entertaining as the unhealthy brands across energy drinks, beer, chips, and candy. Most products in the health and wellness space are all marketed with aspirational fitness models and airbrushed celebrities. And many of us are fucking tired of it. Why should unhealthy products be the only brands with permission to be loud, fun, and weird? And let's be honest, almost all marketing and branding is just theater. So, they're going to treat our theater like a movie theater and have more fun with it. As longtime creative weirdos, they feel that positive, healthy change doesn't have to be boring and artless. If you want to have a bottled water at a concert, in a bar, at a party, in your car, or anywhere, it shouldn't have to also mean drinking from a plastic bottle that isn't actually recyclable, recyclable and eventually ends up in the ocean. As they continue to bring their unnecessarily awesome 
and infinitely recyclable bottled water option to more people. They are equally as excited to use their Healthy Water brand to help fund and elevate weird art, music, and entertainment that most big corporate brands would never touch. Much like Liquid Death, this ad is completely unnecessary, as Liquid Death is not even an official sponsor of the show. With that being said, I fucking love them anyway. So much so, in fact, I sold my soul to their company in exchange for joining the Liquid Death Country Club, an exclusive members-only fan club of Liquid Death Mountain Water. In the club, you will have exclusive emails sent your way for discounts, offers, merchandise, and special events. Well worth the price of one measly human soul that, let's be honest, I really wasn't using anyway. Go check out liquiddeath.com now and check out this completely unnecessary brand and order some delicious, thirst-murdering, death-to-plastic-dealing, eco-friendly, 100% recyclable mountain water fresh from the Alps today. Now also available in the sparkling water option. Go and murder your thirst now. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you are brave enough to dive into the depths. Come visit me in the monster's lair and make it out safely on the other side. I will now unleash your shackles, allow you to stand up, and allow you to now be free to escape the monster's lair.